This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Sick and Murdered, in which I detail cases where a perpetrator causes a person to fall ill, sometimes even killing them for their own selfish gain. Last time, I told you a fascinating and sad case of Munchausen by proxy, a rare psychiatric phenomenon that causes perpetrators to abuse others in their care by causing them to fall ill. The motivation for this bizarre behavior is to receive attention from doctors, nurses, family members, and others. As I explained last time, in approximately 98% of cases, it is the mother of the child that is guilty of this type of medical child abuse. But in today's case... The person to blame was not a mother, but a hospital worker, a nurse to be specific. This was unheard of since most nurses and healthcare workers are singularly focused on healing their patients and certainly not causing them harm. The medical staff was baffled by the number of attacks on their patients. And when the truth came to light, they were shocked and horrified. This is chapter two, Beverly Ellett, Britain's Angel of Death. Just a note before we begin, this episode details crimes against children. While I don't go into gratuitous detail, it may still be disturbing to hear. I just wanted to give an additional warning before I begin, in case some listeners are particularly sensitive to this subject matter. Second note, you may hear a familiar voice later on in the episode. If you're not quite sure who it is, I'll reveal it at the end. Okay, on with the story. On March 28, 1991, a code red was called in Ward 4 of Grantham and Kesteven Hospital in Grantham, Lincolnshire, England. Five-month-old Paul Crampton was in distress. He had broken out into a sweat and was almost comatose. Doctors arrived quickly and gave him a shot of glucose. He began to recover. Doctors knew what to do right away to bring him back because this wasn't the first time this had happened, although why it had happened was still a mystery. Paul had been admitted to the hospital eight days earlier after a bad cold had led to a chest infection. He was expected to be in the hospital only for a couple of days to clear up the infection and then released. But on the third day, after Paul seemed to be recovering nicely, he'd taken a turn for the worse. His mother, Kath, watched helplessly as the pediatrician, Dr. Nanyakara, and a few nurses worked over him. Kath remembers the young nurse, Beverly Allett, saying to the doctor, I think I know what's wrong with him. He's hypoglycemic. Hypoglycemia occurs when the body's blood sugar decreases below normal levels. Symptoms can include shaking, sweating, confusion, loss of consciousness, or even death if it goes too low and is not treated. It's a danger especially for those who are diagnosed with diabetes. However, Paul had not been diagnosed with that illness. Paul was put on a glucose drip and quickly began to recover. Kath later said that she'd felt very grateful to the young nurse who was so clever and able to realize so quickly what was happening. But two days later, Paul suffered another attack. Again, Beverly Allett was on duty and sounded the alarm. Doctors revived him again with glucose. Paul recovered completely over the next few days and was ready to be sent home. Doctors still had no answers for Kath and David Crampton, Paul's parents. They said they would have more blood tests run to try and find out what had happened, but for now, it was still a mystery. 
On March 28th, baby Paul suffered his third attack. His blood sugar had plunged so low that this time he nearly died. After this third attack, he was sent to another hospital in nearby Nottingham as a precaution. Beverly Allett, who had been present each time Paul had an attack, offered to ride in the ambulance with him. His parents were touched that she was so invested in caring for their baby. They hadn't noticed that Paul's attacks had ceased while Beverly was off duty for three days, and that the third one had coincided with her return. Beverly Gale Allett began working on Ward 4, the children's ward of Grantham Hospital, just five weeks before Paul Crampton was admitted. She'd spent several months training, taking exams, and working on a geriatric ward before she was transferred to work with the children. This was a lifelong dream of Beverly's. She had grown up in the village of Corby Glen, eight miles outside of Grantham. Her parents, Richard and Lillian, were well-liked and respected in the town that held just 450 residents. There were four children in the Allett family, Beverly, a younger brother, Darren, and two sisters, Donna and Allison. Everyone in the village remembers how Beverly loved to care for children. She was good with them, playing with them and taking them for walks through the village. Children took to her as well. She was a popular babysitter in Corby Glen. Beverly talked of becoming a nurse and taking care of children since she was a girl. Her grandmother, Dorothy Burroughs, recalls when Beverly came to visit her at her home in Bourne, Beverly would often bring a neighbor's child with her. She recalls, Beverly always had this way with children. She used to come with her mom and dad every Sunday afternoon without fail. She would bring children with her. They were neighbors and friends' children from Corby Glen. Some were only babies, two or three months old. She'd take them for a walk, play with them, feed them at tea time, and even bathe them sometimes. She always had a wonderful way with them. Now Beverly had realized her dream of becoming a children's nurse. But soon after she arrived, children began to fall ill. In a hospital, of course, this is not unheard of, especially on a children's ward. Children, especially very young children, can be fragile, and their medical conditions can turn for the worse very quickly. So at first, even though some of the ways the children fell ill seemed out of the ordinary, doctors didn't guess at anything suspicious. On February 21st, seven-month-old Liam Taylor was admitted to Ward 4 with a chest infection a common occurrence and nothing that anyone would be particularly concerned with. In fact, his pediatrician had been treating him outside of the hospital, but decided to send him to Grantham as a precaution. His condition would be monitored for a couple of days, and when he improved, he would be released. When his parents, Joanne and Chris, first arrived on the ward, Liam was put in an incubator. He was smiling and seemed to be comfortable enough. A young nurse with closely cropped blonde hair was on duty in the nursery. She assured them, saying their son was sure to be home in four or five days tops. This nurse was 22-year-old Beverly Allett, who had just begun working on the children's ward two days before Liam was admitted. She was a newly qualified state-enrolled nurse. Before being hired at Grantham, she'd been turned down for a job working on the children's ward at Pilgrim's Hospital in Boston, 30 miles away. She didn't have enough experience, she was told, to be qualified to work with sick children. She had trained for three years at Grantham and spent the last six months as a student nurse on Ward 4. The hospital was short of staff, and out of desperation, they asked Beverly to stay on. They had advertised for a staff nurse, but had not received a single application, and they were already short on nurses, running with a skeleton crew most shifts. Beverly could stay, learn, and gain experience. 
Then she could reapply at Pilgrim Hospital in six months. She eagerly agreed. Now she was put in charge of caring for Liam Taylor. His parents watched as she administered his formula through a tube. Liam was soon sleeping comfortably, and his parents decided to take the opportunity to run home, which was close by. But when they returned just an hour later, they were greeted with alarming news. Liam had taken a turn for the worse. He had stopped breathing, and doctors had rushed to revive him. Now he was fighting for his life. Joanne saw the short-haired nurse, who she'd last seen caring for Liam, and asked her what had happened. She told her, While I was feeding him, he was violently sick. It was so bad I had to go and change my uniform. The ward's two pediatric specialists, Dr. Nanyakara and Dr. Porter, had rushed into action. Dr. Nanyakara told them their son would be monitored closely, and the next few hours would be critical. Liam made it through the night, and his vital signs were improving. The next morning, Nurse Allett came back on duty at 7 a.m. The Taylors were relieved to see the young nurse, who they'd come to rely on to care for their sick child. Chris even asked her to return to work a double shift to care for Liam that night. She went off duty around midday. Through the afternoon, Liam continued to improve. Nurse Allett returned about 10 p.m. to work her next shift. At 5.30 a.m., the Taylors were awakened, having gone to the parents' room on the ward to get some sleep. The ward's most senior nurse, Sister Jean Seville, told them that Liam had suffered a relapse. He had stopped breathing, and the doctors were working on him. By the time they arrived, he was breathing again, but he'd been without oxygen for a period of time. He'd suffered brain damage and was critically ill. It had taken over an hour to get his breathing started, and it was a miracle he was alive. However, the brain damage could not be reversed. His parents had to make a heartbreaking decision. Later that day, they took him off life support. He died late that afternoon. The hospital asked for permission to perform a post-mortem examination on the baby to determine his cause of death. Dr. Nanyakara had suspected septicemia, but the coroner's report stated that Liam had suffered an infarction of the heart. In other words, a heart attack. They did not know, however, what had caused this to happen. Dr. Nanyakara was so disturbed by this finding that he wrote to the coroner asking for a child pathologist to perform a second postmortem. The coroner, however, declined to have this done. Two weeks later, 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick was admitted into the children's ward. Timothy was born with cerebral palsy and was blind. He was severely handicapped, and to provide the care he needed 24 hours a day, he lived at Cordwell House, a children's home. His mother had suffered a stroke just a short time after his birth, and was wheelchair-bound and unable to care for her son's needs. As much as his parents loved Timothy and wished they could raise him at home, it just wasn't possible. They visited him often, taking him out for the day or just sitting and talking with him. He was a cheerful and loving child. On Sunday, March 3rd, Timothy was out of the hospital for the day to visit his family. They had a good day and enjoyed a walk in the park since the weather was pleasant. Two days later, Timothy suffered an epileptic seizure and was first taken to a hospital in Newark. There was no night shift on duty there, so he was transferred to Grantham General Hospital. Beverly Allett was on duty that night when he was brought in to Ward 4. After treatment, his seizure stopped. Doctors noted that his progress was good. In the early evening, nurses made their rounds to administer medications for the patients, a busy time on the ward. 
Suddenly, Timothy's condition worsened. Within an hour, he was dead. Doctors, while saddened by his sudden turn, were not suspicious. Timothy had several serious medical issues, epilepsy being one of them, and was fragile. They noted his cause of death as due to complications of epilepsy and cerebral palsy. His parents donated his corneas. His eyes had not been affected by his blindness. And in this way, Timothy, while blind his entire life, was able to give the gift of sight to two total strangers. His parents felt it was a fitting tribute to such a loving boy. On the same day Timothy Hardwick was admitted to Ward 4, Kaylee Desmond, 14 months old, was also admitted. Kaylee was well known on Ward 4, having spent the first four and a half months of her life there. She had been born with a cleft palate and couldn't feed properly, so she'd been kept in the hospital until she was healthy enough to thrive at home. This time, she was back with nothing more than a bad cold. Antibiotics hadn't worked to clear her chest congestion, so she'd been admitted for treatment to make sure her condition didn't become more serious. After six days in the hospital, she was doing well and slated to return home soon. Her mother, Margaret, had stayed by her side night and day, sleeping in a cot beside her bed. Kaylee's father was there every day as well, staying until 9 or 10 p.m. Then on March 9th, in the middle of the night, Kaylee had difficulty breathing and collapsed. She had two attacks in three hours. Doctors rushed to administer oxygen and revived her both times. Margaret left the room briefly when she was stable once again to make a phone call. While she was gone, Kaylee suffered another attack. This time, her heart had stopped beating. After working over her for several minutes, doctors were able to revive her again, but her condition was fragile. She was then transferred to the intensive care unit at the Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. Soon after arriving, she began to breathe again normally and recovered quickly. While she was being examined at Queen's Medical Center, a strange puncture mark and an air bubble was found under her armpit. Due to all the measures that had been taken to save her, the staff just assumed it was an accidental poke from a needle. It was not further investigated. On March 21st, Five-year-old Bradley Gibson was admitted to Ward 4, suffering with a bout of pneumonia. Not long after he was admitted, he suffered a massive, unexplained heart attack. The crash team again swung into action and revived him. His heart had stopped beating for an astounding 32 minutes before he was brought back. His recovery was so miraculous that it was featured on the front page of the local paper and on four television network news stations. Bradley's mother, Judith, was quoted as saying, if it wasn't for the crash team at Grantham Hospital, he would not be here today. It's a miracle. Beverly Allett was, of course, a member of the crash team that had administered life-saving measures to Bradley. But Bradley's recovery was nothing short of miraculous. He was one of the lucky ones. Within three weeks, he was back in school and seemed to be completely back to normal. On March 28th, the day five-month-old Paul Crampton was suffering his third attack, Two-year-old Henry Chan was rushed to Grantham Hospital. He had fallen out of a bedroom window onto a patio below. X-rays showed that Henry had sustained two fractures on his skull. He was admitted to Ward 4 for observation. He was dizzy and complained of a headache, but by the next day he was recovered enough that doctors were talking about releasing him soon. But the next day, his condition worsened. He had a high temperature and was placed on an IV drip to keep him hydrated. His oxygen levels dipped dangerously low over the time he was on the ward. 
Doctors told his parents that if he didn't improve significantly over the next day, they were going to transfer him to Queen's Hospital, which was better equipped to handle critically ill children. But before they could, Henry's pulse began to race, and he suffered a cardiac arrest. He was rushed to Queen's. The doctors found a blood clot in his head, but said it was not a threat. He recovered quickly and was able to go home less than a week later. His parents and doctors, of course, believed that his fall had created the life-threatening situation. Paul Crampton had suffered three dangerously low blood sugar levels in eight days on Ward 4. Paul had also been sent to Queen's Hospital after the third attack. Miraculously, he made a full recovery. Blood tests would reveal that he'd had a massive amount of insulin in his body. This would raise the first suspicions that something strange was happening at Grantham Hospital. Becky and Katie Phillips were twin baby girls who had been delivered at Grantham Hospital that winter. They were premature and had been kept at the hospital for five weeks for observation and were finally released to go home on March 4th. But nine days later, their mother, Sue Phillips, brought Katie back in to be seen for a stomach bug. When she arrived on Ward 4, she recognized Nurse Allett. She and Beverly Allett had been at Grantham College together about five years earlier. She said hello to her, but Beverly made no sign that she recognized Sue. Sue thought that was odd, but was soon preoccupied with seeing to her sick baby. Katie was treated in the hospital for four days and then returned home. Soon after, however, both babies came down with another virus and they were both admitted to Grantham Hospital. Sue saw Beverly on the ward several times, sometimes as nurse to Becky and Katie, but since Beverly hadn't acknowledged her before, she didn't go out of her way to reconnect with her. Beverly simply did her job without making conversation with Sue. The babies returned home again, but soon Becky was sick once more. Sue returned her to Ward 4, now frantic to find out what was going on with the baby. Finally, doctors diagnosed the problem. Becky was having a reaction to the formula she was being fed at home. Once it was switched to a different type, she began to improve and was soon ready to be released home. Sue arrived at the hospital to pick up Becky to bring her home. She was told she had just been fed. But Sue was surprised when Nurse Allett told her it was not a good idea to take Becky home yet. The head nurse on duty took a look at the baby and said she seemed fine and that Sue could take her home. Nurse Allett seemed to be annoyed by this, Sue remembers. Within an hour of returning home, Becky began to cry as if in pain. Then she would stop. Minutes later, it would start up again. When Peter Phillips returned home from work a short while later, he entered to hear ear-piercing screams from the distressed baby. Not long after, she settled down and fell asleep. They called a doctor who came to the home. House calls, that's something unheard of now, at least where I'm from. He diagnosed it as nothing more than colic. He said to feed her a little and she should feel better. Relieved, they did as the doctor suggested. The baby fell asleep. At 2.30 a.m., Katie woke at the normal time for feeding. But when they went to her, she looked like she was having a seizure. Then she stopped breathing. Panicked, they rushed with the baby to the emergency ward of the hospital. But it was too late. The baby had expired. She was given life-saving measures, but it was futile. Becky Phillips was pronounced dead at 3.55 a.m. on April 5th. The doctors didn't know exactly what had caused the baby's death, but they feared it might be meningitis. 
As a precaution, they told Sue and Peter Phillips to bring Becky's twin sister, Katie, in for observation. At 7.30 that morning, Beverly Allett returned to duty on Ward 4. She was given the task of watching over Katie Phillips. Now, Sue recalls, Beverly was very different towards her. Where before she had barely acknowledged her former classmate, she now was very friendly and solicitous towards her. I'm ever so sorry, Sue, that Becky died, Beverly said, addressing her as if she was a friend. But don't worry about Katie. She will be fine, she reassured her. Sue, of course, grieving tremendously for her baby girl, latched onto the memory of Beverly warning her not to take the baby home just yet, the previous day. She began to depend on Beverly for support, trusting her more than anyone else on staff. Katie was perfectly healthy and merely being observed just in case. Beverly, around noon, encouraged Sue and Peter to go home and take a break. I'll look after her, she assured them. She'll be all right with me. They had been home only 30 minutes when the phone rang. Katie was having difficulty breathing. The Phillips felt as if they were trapped inside a nightmare. By the time they arrived, Katie had been put into an oxygen tent and was sleeping soundly, being watched over by their head nurse, Sister Seville. She stayed with Katie until 10 p.m. that night, sitting in a chair by her side. The next day, the hospital, taking no chances, fit a special apnea alarm to Katie's chest that would alert them if Katie stopped breathing for even a second. On Saturday, Beverly was back on duty, and Sue Phillips was relieved to see her. She and Peter took the opportunity to pop upstairs for a bite to eat. When they returned, alarms were going off, and Beverly was running across the corridor holding Katie. She had stopped breathing. She was rushing her to the treatment room, and within moments, doctors and nurses worked on her and revived her. Sue and Peter were beyond relieved and credited Beverly for acting so quickly to get help for their daughter. Sue now began to consider Beverly a friend. Beverly was a constant presence by Katie's side, and Sue was grateful that she was taking such a special interest in her child. She couldn't bear to lose another child and was on pins and needles while the baby recovered. Within a couple of days, Katie looked healthy and just about back to her normal self. But just a day later, Katie crashed once again and stopped breathing. Dr. Nanyakara, Sister Seville, and several others worked over the child, but she was so bad off they warned Nottingham Hospital that they may have to airlift the child to them. There was no sign of life in Katie for over 30 minutes, but the team refused to give up. Incredibly, at minute 32, they saw a flicker of life in her and she began to recover. The team shouted with joy. The baby had struggled to stay alive and was now rallying. They then flew her to Nottingham with her grateful parents close behind. Baby Katie was going to survive. By now, there had been three children who died on Ward 4 and five more who'd become mysteriously critically ill in only six weeks. But the crisis, unfortunately, was not yet over. On April 13th, the day Katie Phillips had been brought back from the brink of death, Two-month-old Christopher Peasgood was admitted to Ward 4 with a bad chest cold. He was put into an oxygen tent to help him breathe and was being fed by a tube. He had been diagnosed with bronchiolitis by Dr. Nanyakara. The next day, Beverly Allett came into his room to administer medication. She told his parents, Why don't you go for a drink and a cigarette? He's all right. He's fast asleep. Don't worry. I'll look after him. Grateful for a chance to stretch their legs, they took her up on the offer. 
They were only gone ten minutes, but when they returned, they saw the crash team rushing towards Christopher's room. Nurse Ellett put her arm around his mother and tried to comfort her. Come on, he's all right, she told her. They're bringing him back. We'll get you a cup of tea. She seemed so caring and concerned for his parents. Later that day, Christopher had stabilized. Doctors explained that sometimes children with bronchiolitis had mild cardiac arrests. Relieved, they didn't question it further. But at 8 p.m., he crashed again. This cardiac arrest was worse, and the doctors determined that he needed to be transferred immediately to Queen's Medical Center. His parents were sure they had lost him, but when they arrived at the intensive care unit, he had made a remarkable recovery. He's not going to die, the doctors told them. He's going to be perfectly fine. And he was. Three days later, he was released to go home. But they still wondered, why was he dying one minute and okay the next? The day the Peasegoods took their baby home, seven-week-old Patrick Elstone was admitted to Ward 4. Patrick was also a twin. He had a brother, Anthony. Patrick had a cold and had stopped eating, so his pediatrician advised his parents to have him admitted to the hospital. He was doing well by his first evening there. The next day, his mother Hazel sat by his side all day. She left at 2 p.m., and Patrick had looked perfectly fine, kicking and cooing in his nursery bed. At 8 p.m., the hospital called to say he was a little worse and they should return to the hospital. Coincidentally, Sue Phillips was on the ward sitting with her baby Katie that evening when she saw Beverly come out of one of the rooms carrying Patrick in her arms and shouting that he'd stopped breathing. Nurse Seville took the baby from her and got him breathing again. He was then taken to the trauma room. At 9 p.m., Hazel and her husband Robert were allowed in to see Patrick. He was breathing, but Dr. Porter couldn't explain what had happened. Once again, they determined another critical infant, this time Patrick, had to be rushed to Queen's Medical Center. At 7 a.m., they received the good news that Patrick was making good progress. For two days, he continued to improve. However, on the third day, he suffered a small fit, twitching and shaking. These fits lasted about a minute each time and continued for the next few hours. Doctors had no explanation for this either. A few days later, Patrick was allowed to go home. Once he left the hospital, his fits stopped and they never returned. Five children had been rushed from Grantham's Hospital to specialists in Nottingham in less than two months. The normal rate for this type of emergency intervention was five in an entire year. They began to consult with doctors, pediatricians, and consultants to try and figure out what was going on. It took one last tragic event for the light bulb to finally go on and to end the tragic deaths and critical illnesses of children on Ward 4. 15-month-old Claire Peck suffered from asthma. Claire was having trouble breathing due to her condition on April 22nd when her parents, Sue and David Peck, rushed her to Grantham Hospital. Their family doctor said that with the treatment she would receive at the hospital, she should be recovered within 24 hours. Instead, within four hours... Claire was dead. When she was admitted, she was indeed in distress. Unlike some of the other children who were not in an emergency situation, Claire actually was. Doctors first put her on a nebulizer, but it didn't help. When they tried to take her blood pressure, Claire's arm turned blue, indicating that she was suffering from very low oxygen. Another difference in Claire's case 
was that when Sue Peck arrived at the ward, she saw Nurse Allett sitting at the receiving desk. Unlike other parents who'd found her kind and helpful, Sue Peck remembers that she recognized the young nurse, whom she didn't like. She remembered her being very unfriendly to Sue and baby Claire on a number of occasions that they'd been at the hospital. She wasn't sure why, but the nurse always seemed irritated to have to deal with Sue and her daughter. Dr. Porter was on duty, and after assessing Claire, said he'd have to insert a tube in her throat to open her airway to get her some much-needed oxygen. Sue couldn't handle seeing this and handed the baby over to a nurse. She and David were told the procedure wouldn't take long and walked down to the parents' lounge to wait. The doctor left a while later to consult with another doctor about the drug dosage they were going to administer to Claire. Beverly Allett and one other nurse were left in the room with her. The second nurse told Beverly she was going to walk down to the lounge to update Claire's parents on what was happening. Beverly was now alone with the baby. Within seconds, the nurse had not yet even reached the lounge. Beverly was crying out for help from Claire's room. When doctors and nurses arrived, they found the baby had stopped breathing and quickly administered more oxygen, and she recovered quickly. Once she'd recovered enough, Dr. Porter administered the medication. Afterwards, he left Beverly alone with Claire. Soon another nurse came in to help, but was called away shortly after. The second nurse had only just left the room when once again Beverly cried out for help. This time, Claire had suffered cardiac failure. The crash team began to try and shock her heart into starting again. They worked over her for several minutes. Claire never responded and died in the treatment room. Her parents were distraught, of course, and so was Dr. Porter. He told them that he could not fathom what had happened for them to lose Claire. Her death was a million-to-one chance, a freak accident or some other unknown cause. That a child could die from asthma while being treated in a hospital was unfathomable, and he could not understand it, and it seems he could not accept it. Sue and Peter Phillips, who'd lost their baby Becky and almost lost her twin sister Katie, now began to demand answers. They knew now that Liam Taylor, Becky, and now Claire had all died on Ward 4, and they decided to take action. They demanded a meeting with the hospital's general manager, Martin Gibson. Why was the ward still open, taking in more ill children after all that had happened? Why weren't they using all the resources to find out what was happening to these children before they put more children in danger. Some parents and community members had floated the idea that a virus was present on the ward, causing the children to have heart attacks. But the hospital had done tests for potentially deadly illnesses that could be spread, such as meningitis or Legionnaire's disease, and had found nothing. There was no such thing as a heart virus, the general manager explained to them. Besides, all the recent deaths on the ward had been signed off by the coroner. In his and the pathologist's opinions, all of the children had died of natural causes. No inquest, the coroner decided, was necessary. Nobody, it seemed, would ever suspect child abuse in the deaths of these children. As the coroner would say, defending his belief that nothing suspicious or abnormal had been going on at Grantham Hospital, it wasn't a case of a baby being covered in bruises. They were in hospital because they were sick, and unfortunately, sick children die. I realized the deaths all came in a short period at the hospital, but sometimes it happens like that. With several of the parents pressuring the hospital authorities to give them answers, the hospital decided it was time to call in the police. 
they hadn't found an insidious virus or contagious illness that could be causing the children to fall ill and die. So without an answer of their own, they decided an investigation should begin. An officer arrived at the hospital to take a report about the strange goings-on in the children's ward. He returned to the police station and admitted to a colleague, I'm out of my bloody depth here. They called in help from police headquarters in Lincoln. On May 1, 1991, Detective Superintendent Stuart Clifton arrived at Ward 4 to begin an in-depth investigation. He first met with the two chief pediatricians, Dr. Porter and Dr. Nanyakara. However, the two doctors were in disagreement about what they'd experienced. Although Dr. Nanyakara was the one who first disagreed with the pathologist's report on Liam Taylor and wanted a second opinion, he was more unsure than Dr. Porter that anything untoward was happening at Grantham. Dr. Porter was sure that something not explained by natural causes was killing their patients. He could only say he had a feeling that something was going on, but he couldn't say what. Porter had attended a pediatrician's conference where he'd heard about children being tampered with while in the hospital. When he returned, he decided to ask the hospital administrator to have a video surveillance camera installed on the ward. He'd made the phone call three days before Claire Peck's death. Unable to reach the administrator at that time, he made up a list of suggested precautions and measures to ensure that no one was tampering with their patient's medications or in any other way. But on Monday, Claire had died before any of his ideas could even be discussed. Detective Clifton set up an incident room at the Grantham Police Station and enlisted 11 other officers to begin the investigation. He also called in the police department's family support unit, who were experienced in child abuse cases. They spent 10 days interviewing the parents of the children who had died or become critically ill in the past two months. Rather than gathering information that might lead them to a suspect, on the contrary, most parents had nothing but praise for Grantham Hospital and the staff on Ward 4. For three weeks, the investigation team went over hospital records, paying particular attention to the case histories of each child that had passed through the ward during the time in question. They also analyzed each emergency that had occurred. They found there had been 24 separate incidents in 60 days in which children had suffered cardiac arrests, respiratory failures, and heart attacks. In each of these incidents, the crash team had been called. This was in contrast to a typical need for the emergency response team to be called into action on the children's ward, normally about one to two times per year. The police now suspected that something more was at play here than bad luck. Clifton just had that sixth sense that good detectives have when they've been at the game long enough. There was something here, and he was going to find it. They began to analyze the medical records of 11 children in particular. The four who had died, Liam Taylor, Timothy Hardwick, Becky Phillips, and Claire Peck, as well as seven children who'd barely survived an attack. Kaylee Desmond, Paul Crampton, Bradley Gibson, Henry Chan, Katie Phillips, Christopher Peasgood, and Patrick Elstone. They began with Paul Crampton's case. They had blood test results that had been taken when he was admitted to Queen's Medical Center. The test revealed that Paul's blood contained an alarmingly high amount of insulin, 148 milliunits per liter of blood, compared to a normal level of between 4 and 6. They also found that a sample had been taken earlier at Grantham Hospital that was sent out to a laboratory for detailed analysis. 
they were astounded to find that the insulin level in this sample was in excess of 500. Worse still, they couldn't tell how much in excess over 500. Their equipment couldn't measure levels that high. It was possible for children's insulin levels to spike very high when there was evidence of a tumor or some other medical factor. However, this was not found in Paul Crampton's case. But the body also produces another substance, called C-peptide, at exactly the same rate as it manufactures insulin. C-peptide was not found at the same levels or even close to it. It was only present at a normal level. At the end of this analysis, it was determined that insulin had been administered to Paul. There was no other explanation. They gave Paul's first sample to another lab that could determine insulin levels above 500. What they found was mind-boggling. Paul's insulin level was recorded at 43,000 milliunits per liter of blood. This was equivalent in a baby to having an entire 10 milliliter syringe of insulin injected into his blood in one dose. Could this have been an accident or was it intentional? And if it was intentional, who could do such a thing? Insulin was kept in a locked refrigerator on the ward. Investigators became even more suspicious when they found that the key had gone missing. Nurse Allett said that when she'd gone to open it one day, she found the key was gone. A search had been conducted, but it was never found. Now they had to narrow their list of suspects. Clifton and the investigation team drew up a complex chart of dates, names, and who was on the ward at each time of the attacks. As they meticulously went through every event, one name kept coming up over and over. Nurse Beverly Allett. Beverly Allett was arrested on Monday, June 3rd, and transported to Grantham Police Headquarters. She was questioned for two days about the attack on Paul Crampton. Police thoroughly believed that if she was responsible, the 22-year-old nurse would be no match for the seasoned detectives. They assumed if she was caught, she would quickly confess. How wrong they were. They were first puzzled by her lack of emotion at being arrested. She had no emotional reaction at all. She did not protest, cry, or seem alarmed in any way. She was stoic and just calmly continued to deny that she was involved. They decided to give her a night to think about it and put her in a cell until the morning. Certainly, faced with the reality of the serious situation she was in, she would come to realize that she should cooperate. But they were surprised and disappointed to find her sleeping soundly in the cell when they came to retrieve her the next morning for more questioning. She was sleeping so soundly, in fact, that they had to shake her awake. She was released on bail the following evening and sent out on extended leave at the hospital at the suggestion of the police. Investigators now set to find out just who was Beverly Allett. By interviewing Beverly Allett's family, friends, and neighbors in the small village of Corby Glen, they heard all about the girl who loved to take care of children. They were told that she was considered an angel by those who knew her, so kind and loving. They also heard stories about how her life had been lived in pursuit of becoming a nurse and working to help heal and care for children. This flew directly in the face of the heinous and evil acts they suspected of her perpetrating on baby Paul Crampton, and most likely other children as well. She came from an intact home with loving and supportive parents. She and her family were church-going and law-abiding citizens. There was no hint of even teenage rebellion in her past, 
much less any type of criminal behavior. They'd have to dig deeper. They interviewed her closest childhood friend, Rachel Smith, and her long-term boyfriend, Steve Biggs, who she'd once been engaged to. Rachel described Beverly as a bit of a tomboy and someone who wasn't concerned with clothes and makeup like most of her other schoolmates. She was a bit on the heavy side, but it didn't seem to bother her. She didn't have a boyfriend in school, but that didn't seem to bother her either. She seemed to prefer playing with and caring for younger children. She spent most of her time babysitting when not engaged in schoolwork or sports. She was an above-average pupil and graduated with good marks in 1985. As a teen, she earned a few dollars babysitting, as well as working at the local pub waiting tables, and as a cashier at the village store. After graduation, she began taking classes at Grantham College in hopes of earning a nursing degree. So far, investigators didn't find anything of note about Beverly Allett, and then they spoke to her ex-fiancé, Steve Biggs. Steve met Beverly in September of 1987 at the local pub. She was drinking beer and playing darts with a girlfriend. She had never been popular with the boys in town. She was a bit plain, preferring to wear baggy overalls and sweatshirts and no makeup. But Steve was attracted to her right away. He asked her to play a game of pool with him, and she beat him handily. That was it for Steve. He was soon in love. Steve was a big man, a six-foot-two-inch road worker, and might be considered tough and intimidating, but he was a big softy, shy and soft-spoken. He was dominated by his girlfriend Beverly from the start. She had a strong personality, he said, and in their two and a half years together, Beverly always got her way. And she was a tough one, not just tough, but actually abusive. Beverly would bully him, sometimes attacking him with her fists when she didn't get her way. He'd received more than one knee to the groin administered by his girlfriend. Beverly showed almost no affection towards Steve. She was cold and standoffish most of the time. Even when they began to have a sexual relationship, it was always on Beverly's terms. Steve was pretty inexperienced with women, and so he let Beverly take the lead in their relationship. Later, he wondered if one of the reasons for her lack of physical affection towards him might be due to an incident she told him about soon after they began dating. Beverly said that a year earlier, one of her friends had set her up with a boy named Kevin Fowler, a former classmate of Steve's. Beverly and Kevin had gone out with her friend and her boyfriend a couple of times. She considered Kevin a friend, nothing more. One night, he walked her home. Out of nowhere, she was surprised when he held a knife to her throat and tried to rape her. She'd managed to struggle and get away. She never told anyone, not even her parents. Steve felt sympathy for Beverly and anger towards her attacker, wishing he could get his hands on him. Later, it would be discovered that the whole story was a lie. Kevin had been out twice with the other couple and Beverly when he was 17 years old. He found her a, quote, ordinary girl, plain and a bit dull. A relationship didn't materialize between them. They'd never even kissed or held hands. Later, Kevin would find out that Beverly accused him of trying to rape her, and after angrily defending himself, he said, I can only think she made up the story to make people feel sorry for her. She must have a screw loose to do something like that. Steve was in love and wanted to get engaged, but it hadn't popped the question since he really couldn't read Beverly. He wasn't sure that she would accept. She was so ambivalent towards him that he could never be sure of her feelings for him. But out of the blue one day, Beverly popped the question. Turning to him, she asked, Do you fancy getting married? When he answered yes, 
she told him without emotion or formality, that they would get married in two to three years, when they'd saved up enough money. When Beverly finished her college courses, there were no vacancies for student nurses at Grantham Hospital. She had to wait for six months before she was accepted. She trained as a student nurse for three years. In 1991, she went for an interview to work in the children's ward at Pilgrim Hospital, but was rejected. That's when Grantham stepped in and offered her the short-term, six-month contract to work on Ward 4. Steve was at first happy for her, but then was disappointed when she told him she was moving away from Corby Glen to live in the nurse's home in Grantham, across from the hospital. Now they would only be able to spend weekends together. And soon, their weekends became not happy reunions, but days full of quarreling and arguing, and Beverly demanding more from Steve. She had already taken his car from him, using it to drive back and forth to Corby Glen. He wanted to see her, so he'd reluctantly agreed. But when she was home, she spent almost the entire time studying for her exams, and he felt neglected. She also wouldn't give him her telephone number at the nurse's home, not wanting to be disturbed while she was busy. She wouldn't even hold his hand in public when they were together, and often became enraged when he complained about the relationship or voiced his displeasure. Steve admits, She used to hit me quite a lot, and I just had to take it. She would end up thumping me in the face with a fist. Once she gave me a black eye and it turned all yellowy green. I'm around six foot two and weigh twelve and a half stones, but she could impose her will upon me. She could get what she wanted any time, and she did it with other people. Bev can manipulate people. And there were other incidents of attention-seeking by Beverly. Steve remembers one night when Bev came rushing to him holding her thumb. She said she'd gotten it stuck in a faucet. He rushed her to the hospital. It was broken, and doctors said it in a plaster cast. Afterwards, Steve thought about it and decided she'd done it deliberately to be the center of attention. He admitted that Bev always wanted to be the center of attention. Steve still wanted to marry Bev, but she kept putting him off. She also began to ignore him more and was cold and distant to him. He got fed up with receiving no love or affection from his fiancée and decided to try and call her bluff. He announced he wanted to end the engagement one day when he was visiting her at her parents' house. He then got up to leave. Bev blocked his exit, slamming the door. She grew enraged, tearing at his hair and screaming, You're not going anywhere! She grabbed him and dragged him down to the floor, still attacking him. Her sister jumped in to stop her. Steve agreed to continue the relationship, but in the spring of 1990, Beverly called him out of the blue and told him she'd decided to break up with him. The investigators had arrested Beverly Allett due to the fact that she'd had means and opportunity to be considered the most likely suspect in the attack on Paul Crampton. But what they still wanted to find out was her motive. Dr. Porter described for Detective Clifton the condition called Munchausen syndrome, an extreme and chronic form of attention-seeking. For a more in-depth explanation, listen to the last episode, Chapter 1 of this series. Perhaps, Dr. Porter suggested, the perpetrator didn't mean to kill anyone, and was just trying to make them ill, but it had just gone too far. Perhaps they wanted to be involved in the drama of trying to save them, then get the praise for helping them to survive from the brink of death. Clifton knew about Steve Biggs' suspicion that Beverly's broken thumb was a deliberate attention-seeking device, and he wondered if there were any other incidents like this in her past. When he began to question others, he heard more stories about Beverly Allett's bizarre behavior. While she had been living in the nurse's home, Some strange things had taken place. 
The residents found feces smeared on a door in the house as well as in the kitchen, and some smeared on a wall in the bathroom. A few days later, the firefighters were summoned when smoke filled the home. It was discovered that another turd, for lack of a more elegant term, had been placed under the grill and then switched on. After a time, it had burst into flames. This is so gross. I hope you're not eating a meal right now. Ugh. Looking into her past, they found that Beverly had indeed exhibited attention-seeking behavior from a very young age. School friends remember her always being in bandages, saying that she often suffered sprains or limb fractures. During her training, she took so many sick days that her training could not be completed in the allotted time, and her term in the program had to be extended. Also during her training, she had injured her wrist and ignored the doctor's advice to attend physical therapy appointments. The physical therapist wrote a note that was found in Allett's file, stating that he didn't think she was fit to be a nurse. And her illnesses continued into the present. While on bail, she was ill with a urinary tract infection and had to be fit with a catheter. While she was in the hospital, the staff noted that she seemed to be perfectly fine during the day, but at night, her temperature would rise. Later, it was suspected that she had injected her breasts with water using a syringe. She knew that if she did this, it would send her temperature up and cause her to become ill. As the investigation continued, the media began to take notice. At first, local news outlets began to pick up the story of the mysterious deaths and attacks on children at Grantham Hospital. Then word got out about the initial arrest of Nurse Beverly Allett. The story began to spread to national news reports. It was the first time that a nurse would be suspected of a serial killing in a British hospital. Eventually, the news headlines would dub Beverly Allett the Angel of Death. But Beverly still had many supporters who couldn't believe that she'd had anything to do with harming children. They believed it all must be a big mistake, or that the hospital was getting pressure to find a cause, and decided to blame the young nurse. Of course, Steve couldn't believe the allegations. The police had questioned him several times, and while he admitted that he was one of the only people who could attest to the violent side of Beverly, he still didn't think she was capable of doing something so terrible. He said he still had feelings for his ex, so this perhaps contributed to his disbelief, but he thought it was most likely due to the fact that children were involved. It just didn't make sense that Beverly was responsible, he insisted. Most surprisingly, Sue and Peter Phillips were two of her biggest supporters. They still believed that she had been their angel on the ward when their baby Becky had died so suddenly and were grateful to her for taking such special care of Katie during her terrible illness. They credited her with Katie's survival, so much so that they had asked Beverly Allett to become Katie's official godmother at her christening. Beverly was thrilled. The Phillips initially knew that Bev was being investigated in the case of Paul Crampton. They did not yet know that she was being investigated for the deaths of other children, including their daughter Becky. They were doing what they could to support her and to help her defend herself against the allegations. Their home had become a haven for her, somewhere to go where people weren't looking at her accusingly. She was a regular visitor and spent time caring for Katie while at their home. One day, Bev had lunch with Sue at her house and then offered to take Katie for a walk in her buggy while Sue cleared up the lunch dishes. It was a drizzly day, and at first Sue said it might not be a good idea due to the weather. Bev insisted, saying it would give Sue a break. She finally agreed. No more than five minutes later, Bev was back bursting through the door out of breath. She told Sue to call for a doctor because she was sure that Katie was going to go into convulsions any minute. 
Sue ran to the buggy to see Katie red in the face and sweating. Katie was taken to the hospital quickly and recovered. No cause for this incident was determined. The Phillips once again felt grateful to Bev for acting so quickly. But on June 17th, investigators arrived at the Phillips home with the results of Becky's blood test that they'd had done. Peter was upset that they were still asking them questions about Paul Crampton's case. They told him all that they knew about that already, he replied angrily. The investigators then broke the news that this wasn't about Paul, but about their own twins, Becky and Katie. Superintendent Clifton explained that they'd been investigating the deaths of several children, including Becky's. They'd found insulin in Becky's blood at the level of nearly 10,000 milliunits per liter. It means your daughter was murdered, Clifton said. Who? Sue could only stammer out. They told her it was Katie's own godmother, Beverly Allett. They then found out that she'd been interviewed about both of their daughters, but Beverly had never mentioned it to them. They told Peter and Sue that Beverly Allett was dangerous and that they should keep her away, especially from Katie. They never allowed her in their home again. Beverly needed a place to go while out on bail. She had quickly become persona non grata in Grantham and the surrounding towns and villages. She'd been barred, naturally, from going anywhere near Grantham Hospital. She still had one friend, her friend and fellow nurse on the crash team, Tracy Johnson. Tracy was also a young nurse and had shared a rented house with Beverly previously. She didn't suspect her of anything and felt no reason to distrust her when she offered a room in her mother's home in Orna Goldhay, about 30 miles from Grantham. Beverly quickly accepted. She was eager to get away from the growing throngs of reporters and television crews in Grantham. Tracy's mother, Eileen Jobson, lived in the home along with her son, 15-year-old Jonathan. They liked Bev right away. She was a pleasant and helpful girl, they thought. Eileen also felt sorry for her. When she talked about the allegations against her, she would cry and say she had nothing to do with it. She would also begin to tell Eileen that if she didn't believe her, she would kill herself. She said it multiple times. Of course, Eileen would assure her that she did believe she was innocent. But over the four months she lived in the home, strange things began happening. Just a few days after her arrival, a bathroom curtain showed scorch marks, clear evidence that someone had tried to light it on fire. Then a knife from the kitchen was found stuck through Eileen's pillow. Bleach was spilled on the carpet and on a bed, discoloring them. Eileen's walking stick was found moved to other areas of the home from where it was left. Money was found missing from Eileen's purse, and later, the entire purse vanished. It was eventually found in Bev's car. When Eileen asked her about these incidents, she insisted she had nothing to do with them and suggested that a poltergeist might be responsible. Okay. But then more sinister events began happening. Eileen's dog, Jack, coughed up the remains of two pills. Beverly had alerted her to this, calling, Come quickly, Jack's ill. Incidents continued to happen, and Eileen, of course, believed they'd been caused by their house guest. Bev continued to insist she had nothing to do with them. It was as though Bev was trying to create dramas. With half of the incidents, she would point them out to me if I didn't notice, Eileen would later say. In the end, I knew it was her, but I felt I had to catch her, that I couldn't accuse her without proof. This shows how manipulative Bev could be especially with good-hearted people like Steve Briggs, the Phillips, and Mrs. Jobson. If it was me, or probably you, and one of us found our house guests creating chaos for attention, we'd most likely kick their ass to the curb. Get out. 
but this poor woman felt guilty doing so without proof. Wow. The final straw was one Sunday when Mrs. Jobson, her son Jonathan, and Bev went on an outing to an open-air market. A short time after they arrived, Jonathan, a perfectly healthy teen, collapsed onto the ground and was out cold. Mrs. Jobson yelled for help and noticed Bev just standing there. Even though she's a nurse, she said, she was just standing there. I screamed for help, but she did nothing. She looked totally detached from the situation. By the time he was transported to the hospital, he came to and was fine. The doctors thought he'd probably merely fainted, but Eileen knew that this was no simple fainting spell. Jonathan just laughed it off later and said to Bev, what would people think, you living here and me being taken to hospital? He didn't suspect her. He had grown fond of her and looked up to her like a big sister. But Eileen remembered that right before they left to the market, Jonathan had downed a big glass of juice prepared for him by Beverly. Could she have spiked it with something to create more drama? What if she had tried to poison him? Eileen's family now stepped in, fearing for their safety. They decided to call the police. The police were convinced that Beverly was a real nut and very dangerous and told them to send her away for their own safety. She was turned out, and she ended up next with her parents in Corby Glen. Her father had been a longtime employee of a wine merchant. His boss now gave Beverly a job in the warehouse. He and his wife also happily accepted her offer to babysit their children. The investigation continued for several months. In the end, they built their case against Beverly Allett with the following evidence. Liam Taylor had suffered a massive heart attack, most likely as a result of a strong mixture of drugs unnecessarily administered to him, although they couldn't rule out the possibility that she had stopped his breathing by smothering him. Timothy Hardwick didn't have a fatal epileptic episode as originally believed. They had found lethal levels of potassium in his blood. Kaylee Desmond, who'd collapsed and stopped breathing three times, had air injected into her right armpit. Paul Crampton, who'd also collapsed three times, had been injected with massive amounts of insulin. It was a miracle he'd survived. Bradley Gibson had been poisoned through his drip feed with a combination of drugs and suffered a massive heart attack. Henry Chan, the boy who'd suffered a fall and a fractured skull, had stopped breathing and turned blue while being attended to by Beverly Allett. Investigators suspected she had held her hand over his mouth to stop his breathing. Becky Phillips had been injected with a form of slow-acting insulin. Nurse Allett had been annoyed the day they took Becky home, not heeding her warning. Her blood sugar had dropped to a dangerous level over the course of several hours at home. By the time she was returned to the hospital, she died. Katie Phillips stopped breathing on the ward. She had been suffocated by Beverly Allett. She also had five broken ribs caused by Allett squeezing her hard enough to stop her breathing. She survived two more attacks, but the lack of oxygen had caused permanent brain damage to her goddaughter. They found evidence during their investigation that another child, Michael Davidson, who had been admitted when he was accidentally shot with a pellet from an air rifle, a non-life-threatening injury, suffered a cardiac incident. His heart had stopped after a doctor injected him with medication from a syringe prepared by Nurse Allett. Allett had tampered with the drug, they believed. Michael survived. Christopher Peasgood stopped breathing moments after Allett took over his care. He had a second attack when Allett was on the ward. Again, they suspected that she had interfered with his oxygen intake. He also survived. Christopher King also turned blue and stopped breathing while being cared for by Allett. 
he also survived. Patrick Elstone had also stopped breathing on the ward. He'd had an apnea alarm attached to him that had been switched off. They believed Ellett had switched off the alarm and then smothered him. He survived, but had lasting damage from the oxygen deprivation. Claire Peck had not died from asthma or natural causes, as first ruled. She had been given a fatal injection of potassium. They had the blood samples to prove it. In each incident, except for Michael Davidson, where she'd prepared the syringe, Beverly Allett was on duty and alone with the child who'd suffered an attack. Many of the children had recovered when she was off duty for several days or after they were transferred to another hospital. And there were other suspected victims. Dorothy Lowe was a resident in an elder care facility where Beverly worked part-time. She'd suffered a hypoglycemic attack. Allett had been seen giving the 79-year-old woman an unscheduled insulin injection at about 10 times her normal dosage. Dorothy survived. And Jonathan Jobson's collapse was suspected to be a hypoglycemic attack after Beverly spiked his drink with insulin-producing tablets. The Jobson's dog, Jack, had also been fed pills, but luckily, he was smart enough to spit them out. Finally, another sad casualty of Beverly Allett's time on Ward 4 occurred. Two weeks after Beverly was formally charged, Sister Jean Seville, the lead nurse who'd been on duty when a number of the children had suffered attacks, died as a result of suicide. She couldn't bear the realization that such death and suffering had occurred on her watch, so she took a massive overdose of an over-the-counter pain medication, which killed her. She was 49 years old. She left a suicide note in which she stated that she'd had no knowledge and had nothing to do with what had happened to the children. Please, please believe me, she pleaded. There had never been any suggestion that she was suspected at all. A couple of final pieces of evidence that would be used to point to Allett's guilt was, first, the discovery that someone had cut pages out of the ward notebook that was kept at the nursing station on Ward 4. The missing pages covered the period of time during which Paul Crampton had been cared for at Grantham Hospital. Second, the ward allocation book had disappeared as well. It recorded which nurse had been assigned to which patient. During a search of her home, officers found the book hidden in Beverly Allett's bag in a closet. The key to the refrigerator where the insulin syringes were kept was never found. Beverly was suspected of having taken it, having been the one to report it missing. Finally, there had not been one more attack on Ward 4 since Beverly Allett was first arrested and barred from Grantham Hospital. On November 20, 1991, 23-year-old Beverly Allett was charged with four counts of murder for 8-week-old Liam, 11-year-old Timothy, 9-week-old Becky, and 15-month-old Claire. She was also charged with eight counts of attempted murder and eight counts of assault causing grievous bodily harm. These charges were for Katie Phillips, Henry Chan, Kaylee Desmond, Patrick Elstone, Christopher Peasgood, Christopher King, Bradley Gibson, and Paul Crampton. She was remanded into custody at New Hall Women's Prison near Wakefield, Yorkshire. But even in prison, Beverly began to act out, causing drama. Within a week, she fell in the gymnasium and had to have her wrist and hand bandaged they decided to keep her at the prison hospital instead of returning her to her cell. Her parents drove 180 miles round trip each weekend to visit her, still believing in her innocence. Her grandmother, Dorothy Burroughs, 
also still supported her, believing the police had made a mistake. Before her trial began on March 19, 1992, more charges were added against Beverly Allett for the attempted murders of 15-year-old Jonathan Jobson, 6-year-old Michael Davidson, the boy shot with a pellet gun and whose injection of medicine had been tampered with, and 79-year-old Dorothy Lowe. This brought the total number of charges to 26. By the time of Beverly Allett's first day in court, she was a shadow of her former self. She had lost a dramatic amount of weight. When she was arrested, she'd weighed approximately 12 stones, or 168 pounds, and was now 6 stones 13, or 97 pounds. Doctors diagnosed her with anorexia nervosa. She'd been in the hospital ward suffering from one injury or ailment after another from the time she was booked. They transferred her to Rampton Hospital, a psychiatric facility. Rampton was a far cry from Wakefield Prison. Beverly had a private room with her own bathroom facilities, and it was far more comfortable. She began taking enough liquids containing glucose and vitamins for her weight to stabilize to a non-life-threatening level. She still would not eat solid foods. She was in custody for 453 days before the trial officially started. If she was found guilty, she would become Britain's worst female serial killer since Myra Hindley was found responsible for the Moores murders. Evidence was presented during the case with several parents put on the stand to detail the suffering they and their children had endured at the hands of Nurse Allett. At the fifth week of the trial, Allett collapsed at Rampton Hospital. She had starved herself to the point of near death and was now being fed through a gastric tube in order to keep her alive. The trial ground to a halt until she was out of the woods. She then authorized her attorneys to continue the trial without her presence in the courtroom. She would not give testimony herself and wrote a letter to the judge stating so. She made it clear that she would not have taken the stand even if she had been well enough to do so. It seems that finally, after everything, Beverly was not willing to be the center of attention at her own murder trial. At her trial, the history of her ailments, real and imagined, was entered into evidence. During her time as a nursing student, she'd missed a total of 191 days due to various illnesses. She'd admitted herself so often to the emergency department with cuts, sprains, and other illnesses that the hospital staff was convinced she was deliberately inflicting them upon herself. 29 separate visits were recorded at three different hospitals. She complained of fictitious pregnancy-related illnesses, she was never pregnant, or said she was suffering from brain tumors or ulcers. Real injuries, like cuts and sprains, were treated several times as she caused her wounds to become reinfected or her stitches were ripped out. One hospital staff member grew concerned enough to report Beverly Allett as having a possible diagnosis of Munchausen syndrome, but this was not followed up on. Due to medical record confidentiality, this information was not passed on to other hospitals or to her eventual employers at Grantham Hospital. The judge in the trial would not allow testimony about Munchausen syndrome, fearing it would make it impossible for Allett to receive a fair trial. After 45 days of testimony, the jury went out to deliberate. It took them almost a week to decide the verdict. They found her guilty of four counts of murder and all the other charges of attempted murder except those on Dorothy Lowe and Jonathan Jobson. The law dictated only one sentence for the crime, life imprisonment. Beverly Allett, Britain's angel of death, was sentenced to 13 concurrent terms of life imprisonment on May 28, 1993. 
the judge recommended she serve 40 years minimum, which would have kept her imprisoned until at least 2032, when she would be 64 years old. Even then, she could only be released if she was no longer considered to be a danger to the public. She remained at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. In 2006, she launched an appeal on the length of her sentence. In December of 2007, the court ruled she will have to serve at least 30 years in prison or until 2022 before she can apply for parole. It is unlikely she will ever be considered eligible for release. In an interview with the prosecutor not long after her conviction, she admitted guilt in nine of the 13 counts she was charged with. The only crimes she would not admit to were the attacks on Becky and Katie Phillips. She has never spoken about her crimes again. Afterwards, many would attribute her crimes to Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Dr. Nanyakara takes offense to this, saying that what she did should not be considered as suffering from Munchausen syndrome because, in his opinion, quote, it minimizes her horrendous criminal actions she carried out as someone who was cold-blooded, calculating, deceptive, manipulative, and deadly. Grantham Hospital was tainted by the stain of Beverly Allett's actions. Ward 4 was closed, and its operations were moved to Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. As a result, a more rigorous vetting process of medical staff was implemented, as well as checks and double checks of hospital procedures, so that no one nurse or staff member is given sole control over a patient's care. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Did you recognize the voice who portrayed Stephen Briggs? That was none other than Lorne from the True Crime Guys podcast. He did me a solid by voicing, as he calls it, a bad British accent. If you haven't listened to True Crime Guys, you're missing out. It's a great show, one of my favorites. For more great true crime stories and bad accents, listen to True Crime Guys on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, Lauren. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. You can follow me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.